0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are a returning listener, give yourself a high five because you already know you rock. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you have enjoyed, or are about to enjoy, a binge listen of the rest of the Altitude Crime episodes. And I want to take a quick minute to thank my many international listeners. In addition to plenty of listeners from our friend to the north, Canada, Altitude Crime has reached as far as Australia, New Zealand, Colombia, the Netherlands, the Philippines, Kenya, and more. Altitude Crime now has listeners in every continent except Antarctica. I never thought altitude crime would reach that milestone, let alone at episode 11. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you are enjoying hearing about the little rectangular state that is Colorado. Okay, a little housekeeping here before we get started. Please remember to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and connect with me or suggest a crime on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials and the link to purchase merchandise. So I wanted to mix things up this week. We are talking about two really interesting cases today in which the victims are related and both cases are unsolved. Today, we're talking about the murders of Lorraine Pacheco and Karen Pineda Nelson. So when I began Altitude Crime, my goal was to cover as many unsolved crimes as possible. Quite a few of the last cases we've covered have been solved or are in the process of going to court. So I wanted to get back to an unsolved case or for this episode, two unsolved cases. I believe it is so important to keep telling these stories and to try to keep the knowledge out there about these victims, because you never know who is listening or just might have just the information everyone is looking for. The sad thing about these particular cases is there is so little to be found on these crimes. I found only about a half a dozen sources on each of these crimes that were legitimate and that took some real digging. I like to portray these stories as accurately as possible. So you'll notice in episodes, I often don't quote things like Reddit, web sleuths, etc. While these can have some really interesting information, the information isn't necessarily really vetted and can become kind of garbled from person to person. So I wanna give a huge shout out to the Denver Post and philosophyofcrime.com because even though there was not a lot of info out there, I would not even have an episode to write if it wasn't for them. Like I said, both of these murders are currently unsolved, and if you were a fan of episode three about the murders of Sherry Boyd and Eric Houston, you're really going to enjoy this episode because the similarities are uncanny. So let's dive in. going to start with the story of Lorraine Pacheco's life and death. Most of the following information came from an article on philosophyofcrime.com written by Carolyn Berardino. This article was extremely helpful because she used a source from the Denver Post blog, which was a follow-up regarding Lorraine's life and case, but the blog is no longer active on the Denver Post site. So again, I am so glad this information exists because it's so few and far between. Lorraine was born on August 17th, 1953. She experienced tragedy early on in her life. At age 16, her mother passed away in an accident. Her mom, Dora Pineda, was killed when she was hit by a car on New Year's Eve in 1970 as she left a party. And Dora's death is really the third tragedy in this episode, because the incident was nefarious. Dora had been forced to run across the highway as two men chased after her, and going across the highway was her only route to get away from them. A car driving down the highway hit her, killing her pretty much instantly. Dora's body had been thrown by the impact of the car 77 feet from the scene. I also tried to look into information on more about Dora's case or who these men were, and I couldn't find any news articles or anything really reflecting the incident, which, like I said, is the additional tragedy to this episode. Luckily, Lorraine had support following her mother's passing. Her father, Alex Pineda, had been separated from Dora, but they had actually been planning on getting back together right around the time when Dora passed away. Alex decided to stay with the family as planned and to be there for Lorraine and her siblings, but luck did not stay with Lorraine. Shortly after her mother's death at age 17, Lorraine's boyfriend shot her in the head. While she survived the incident, Lorraine was in a coma for a few days. In addition to the severe emotional damage from the event, Lorraine found that she was permanently blinded from the gunshot. But Lorraine did not let her new disability slow her down. While living with her new blindness, Lorraine got married. She became pregnant and gave birth to a daughter. But the happy time was wrought with more misery for Lorraine. The baby girl died at two days old. The death of their baby put a huge strain on the new marriage, and the union ended in divorce. Newly separated from her husband, Lorraine decided to move in with her sisters. At this point, Lorraine would have had every reason to throw in the towel and be a hermit that other people had to take care of and just be a miserable person because, let's be honest, she got every bad card in the deck. She'd been shot in the head and survived, suffered the loss of a child, and her marriage had ended. Lorraine's family and friends always called her tiny, but her spirit was anything but. She took initiative to go to a school that taught her how to live independently while being blind, and she eventually left the sister's apartment and went out to get her own place. While Lorraine was slowly becoming independent, the blows of misery would not stop coming. Her younger sister, Karen, would be murdered in 1988 when she was only 29 years old. We'll talk a little bit more about Karen a little bit later in the episode. Lorraine was graced with one thing. The brain injuries she received from the shot to the head had affected her memory. By some odd stroke of luck, this damage kept her from remembering all the terrible things that had happened in her life. She would later not have any memory of her sister's murder. And you have to wonder if this was all due to her injury or if it was a combination of a coping mechanism that kept Lorraine moving forward. According to the Denver Post, in 1997, Lorraine was 43 years old. She had been living alone in a six-unit duplex on West 20th Avenue and Elliott Street in Denver. For those of you familiar with the old Mile High Stadium, where the Denver Broncos and, briefly, the Colorado Rockies played, this intersection is near the north end of the stadium where the new stadium sits, whatever its name is now, because it's changed like four times already. The intersection sits off of a north parking lot where a little mini stadium was built to signify the location of the original. As reported by the Denver Post, on Wednesday, May 14, 1997, a woman, who would later be identified as Lorraine, was pulled from the burning duplex by her neighbors, Clement Calderon and Ruben Palma. Calderon was quoted as saying, quote, We kicked in the front door and we saw her laying there, face up, on the floor, right as you walk through the door, unquote. Firefighters were the first to respond at 6.39 p.m. and had the fire controlled in about 10 minutes. Two off-duty police officers followed, who stayed with Lorraine until the ambulance arrived. Although the ambulance arrived quickly, Lorraine died when she arrived at Denver Health Medical Center, which was only about 10 minutes away. While the evidence found at the scene is important, it did not give investigators many leads to go on. Investigation of the scene showed there was no forced entry. Lorraine very well may have known her attacker and gave them access to her home. The Denver Post reported the next day that electrical causes for the fire had been eliminated as a possible cause of the death. Investigators specializing in arson, quote, said the fire looked suspicious because it appeared to have originated in the woman's bedroom in a mattress, unquote. Detective Steve Shaw explained that the death was being investigated as a homicide, Pacheco's throat had markings indicative of having been strangled by an object similar to a rope or a cord. There was also reference to the no longer available Denver Post blog that mentioned Lorraine was also raped, but I haven't been able to confirm this anywhere else. Publicly, there have been no persons of interest or suspects named in this case, and it seems unlikely that there will be without some new information. If you have any information about this case, no matter how small, please contact the Denver Police Department on their 24 7 tip line at 720 720 913 2000. Or if you'd like to remain anonymous, you can report any tips to the Crime Stoppers tip line. At 720 913 Stop, or that would be 720 913 7867. Callers into Crime Stoppers may remain anonymous and receive a reward of up to $2,000. Karen Lynn Pineda was Lorraine's younger sister. She was born on November 29th, 1959. While many of the details of Karen's life as a child are unknown, we do have some of the milestones from Lorraine's story to go off of. We know her mother died when Karen would have been 11, followed by her father taking the siblings in. And I'm sure Karen had a front seat to the tragedy in Lorraine's life. It is unclear if Karen was one of the sisters Lorraine was living with while she was learning to be independent after her divorce. Karen's lifestyle became a rough one. She had lived on the streets at times and had issues with drugs and alcohol. But regardless of this, Karen was still extremely close with her family. She kept in contact with them consistently, talking to them at least once a week, but often more than that. I found this really interesting because it tends to be kind of unheard of with people who lead this type of lifestyle it leads me to believe that the family had a very strong, open, and maybe non judgmental bond that made her comfortable with being in touch with them. Versus some family situations in which the person leading this lifestyle has to know that their family looks down upon it, or it might even be a point of conflict within the family. In a situation like that, the person may not want to deal with the expectations of their family or just not deal with the conflict or just not want to hear it, and they stay out of contact for longer periods of time. The last time Karen's family would see her was one day before her 29th birthday on November 28, 1988. At the time, Karen had married Charles Nelson and had taken his last name. The two had been married for two weeks and were living in Strasbourg. Strasbourg is located about 45 minutes east of the heart of Denver, not far from the rest of Karen's family. After seeing Karen just prior to her birthday, weeks began to pass with no word from her. Her other sister, Deborah Trujillo, continued to grow worried the longer it went that no one heard from Karen. It was unlike her to have gone this long without checking in. Sick of waiting around to hear from her sister and very nervous about her whereabouts, Deborah filed a missing persons report in February, 1989. This was three months after the last time the family had seen her. In the process of filling out this report, Deborah learned something shocking and suspicious. She found out that Karen's husband, Charles Nelson, had attempted to file a missing person report in January, 1989, just the month prior but he never contacted anyone in Karen's family to ask if she was with them or notify them that he thought she was missing. I don't know about you, but it seems like the only time this happens is when the significant other is trying to hide information. If you were truly concerned, wouldn't your spouse's family be the first call you would make? When Nelson talked to authorities, his story of Karen's disappearance was not quite in line with her family's. According to her family, they saw her the night before her birthday, which was the evening of November 28th. She left and there were no signs she was in duress or anything was out of the norm. According to Nelson, on Karen's birthday evening the following day, November 29th, he had confronted her about drugs he had found in her things and about the fact that she was under the influence that evening. They got in a big argument, and Karen left the house shortly after. Within hours, Karen returned to the home with another man that Nelson didn't know. Karen had come to gather her things, and she was leaving Nelson and moving to Florida. After that night, Nelson heard no word from Karen. He claimed he waited two months to file the report, as Karen was known to take time to herself for weeks at a time. He thought that she might have been taking time to cool off and would be back eventually. However, the missing person report wasn't actually filed. When Nelson came to police and insisted Karen was missing, he also countered that friends he had in Florida had seen her around. Who these friends were still remains unclear. Regardless, Karen's family was not contacted and no efforts went into finding Karen after Nelson visited the police. Once her sister, Deborah, officially reported Karen missing and digested this disturbing news about the previous report, missing person flyers started to circulate through town asking for information as to Karen's whereabouts. Little did Karen's family know, she technically had already been found and within days of the last time they saw her. But this wouldn't be a happy reunion. On Saturday, December 3rd, 1988, just five days after the last time Karen's family saw her, a father and son driving along County Road F in Morgan County came across a strange scene. Morgan County is located in Northeast Colorado, and the beginning of the county line is about one hour away from Strasburg, where Karen and her husband were living. This county is a farming and ranching community known for sugar beets, corn, alfalfa, dairy, and beef cattle. It's a relatively quiet community, So while they were driving along, when the duo saw a small fire burning near the side of the road, they knew it was out of place. When they got out of their car to investigate, they found the fire smelling of diesel fuel was burning a dead body. The female body was missing both its head and hands. For the science of the time, this made identification of the victim nearly impossible. It wouldn't be until some months later that investigators would connect the missing Karen to the dismembered body found in a country field. In May 1989, three months after Karen's sister reported her missing, Morgan and Arapahoe County investigators started to connect the dots. Remember, Morgan County is where the dismembered and unidentified body was found. Arapahoe County oversees southeastern Denver and stretches through Strasburg, where Karen was living. Morgan County initially alerted Arapahoe County to a missing person description from Arapahoe that was extremely similar to their Jane Doe found in December. Efforts to confirm the connection between the missing person, Karen Pineda Nelson, and Jane Doe were coordinated between Morgan County, Arapahoe County, and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. To aid in the match, Karen's family provided blood samples to be tested against the Jane Doe. At the time, this was really new technology, and investigators were hoping it would give them the break they were needing. On August 24th, 1989, the woman investigators had known for eight months as Jane Doe would finally be identified. Her DNA was matched with that of Karen Lynn Pineda Nelson. As of the most recent public case report update, Charles Nelson's recounting of the last time he saw his wife alive has never been validated by police. Nelson has always been considered the prime suspect in her murder, but charges have never been brought against him, most likely due to lack of evidence. While Karen's family has not gotten justice in the courts, they believe they know what happened to her and that it was at the hands of her husband. If you have any information about this case, please contact the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office at 303 303- or email coldcase at arapahoegov.com. And Arapaho is spelled A-R-A-P-A-H-O-E. So again, that's coldcase at arapahoegov.com. So let's wrap up today with a couple of musings. Musing number one, I cannot believe how similar these cases are to those of half-siblings Sherry Boyd and Eric Houston that I covered in episode three. Sherry and Lorraine's cases have very similar parallels for investigators. They were both disabled in some way. Sherry was in a wheelchair and leg braces while Lorraine was blind, so the assumption for investigators is that their circle of people that they knew or had in their lives was very small. In both cases, there was no forced entry at their apartments, which gives the sign that they knew their attacker or felt comfortable enough with the person trying to enter their homes to let them in. After covering episode three, I do have to wonder if Sherry or Lorraine could have let their guard down for someone saying they were with social services, or even saying they were a repairman in the apartment complex. That's really the next step for me outside of somebody that they just knew. I had never heard of either of these stories prior to researching them, and the similarities are just wild. And I will say if I come across another case like this anytime soon, it may send me into full crime conspiracy mode. Similar to Eric Houston's case, Karen's case was groundbreaking in Colorado for the use of DNA in crime investigations. If you remember, Eric's case was the first in Colorado in which DNA was used to identify a perpetrator and solve a case. In Karen's case, DNA was used for the first time to identify a Jane Doe, a previously unidentified murder victim. Musing number two. In Lorraine's case, I did mention a reference that she was raped, but I've not been able to really confirm that this is accurate. But if that were the case, that means that there could be DNA of her killer out there. If we don't hear any more about this, there could be a few reasons for it. She either actually wasn't raped and there actually is no DNA to be tested, or the DNA sample is too small or it's incomplete for our current scientific abilities, or there is DNA information, but there's been no one to match it against. As we know, TV and movies have given us pretty unrealistic views as to how DNA analysis works. While the science is majorly important and definitely solves a lot of cases, you have to have other pieces of evidence or a suspect to really make DNA pan out. So I will be curious to see if this comes up in the future. Musing number three. In regards to Charles Nelson's story that Karen was leaving him and going to Florida, as close as she was with her family, And the fact that she saw them the day before this supposedly happened, don't you think she would have mentioned it to at least one person in her family, even if they may have disagreed with her? I mean, we've already seen this bond where she has strong ties to her family, even through living on the street and her involvement with drugs and alcohol. You would think her saying she was leaving her husband or moving would seem minor compared to this and something she would feel comfortable sharing. I'm not a part of this family, so I can't say that without a doubt, but it definitely caused me to pause. Musing number four. I have to put out the disclaimer that Charles Nelson is innocent until proven guilty, or in this case, innocent until charges can even be put against him. But I want to put out a thought with the framing that he is responsible for Karen's death. I wonder if the kind of missing person report that he put in with police was just to have a paper trail for himself. Like, he could point to it later on and be like, see, I was concerned. I put in a police report because she was missing. I think something that points to this is that he did meter it with the friends that had supposedly seen her. So she really isn't missing then? I think this could have been a way to create a paper trail to show him as a concerned husband, but without really officially filing the report, it still allows him to keep an arm's distance away from her family. If the report wasn't officially filed, authorities have no reason to contact her family. And had Deborah not reached out a month later to put in a missing person report, who knows how long it could have been before they realized that something happened to Karen and how much evidence is lost in the meantime. Musing number five. This is another case that was really hard to cover because you have two women who were really trying to turn their lives around, especially Lorraine. She was freaking resilient. And this really is the tragedy of true crime for me is that as much as I'm a believer in karma and a universal balance, And it's so heartbreaking to think of one family enduring so much loss. Where is the balance in that? This is also another couple of cases where I do not feel the victims got their due respect as far as the coverage of their crimes. Lorraine's was covered briefly right after it happened, but there were no anniversary articles or requests for more information. And for Karen, a case in which we think we have a very clear suspect, there was even less information. Her story tends to turn up on these top five lists of Colorado unsolved crimes, but there's no justice in that. And similar to Eric's case, even though the breakthrough in DNA science was so monumental in identifying her, there's no headlines about this. And there was no headlines about Eric's case and the DNA connection either. Lorraine and Karen were victims twice. Once when they were killed, And twice when their story fell out of the news because it wasn't sexy enough or they weren't seen as interesting or important enough. And that again is why I'm so dedicated to covering unsolved crimes because so often are they unsolved because they're uncovered because there's so little information out about it. You have to wonder if there's a very clear connection there. So please, if you have any information regarding these cases, don't hesitate to reach out to the authorities I mentioned earlier. There is no timeline on justice, and we can only hope that the day is coming sometime for Lorraine, Karen, and the rest of the Pineda family that they will get closure and justice in these cases. And that brings us to the end of the episode. I know this one's a little bit shorter than some of our other episodes, but thank you for sticking around for these cases. I know I can't give you quite as involved information and it makes for not as long of an episode, but these are the ones I feel are the most important to tell. And I hope the need for answers fuels you all. Please make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or Twitter at Altitude Crime. I'd love to hear what you guys think of these cases and keep the suggestions coming. We've had quite a few more come in, so I promise I'm going to cover all of them. Also visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials. And remember, help other people find the podcast. Leave a review and recommend the podcast to all your true crime loving friends. And if you just can't get enough of Altitude Crime, or you just like my super cool logo, I've got a little something to hold you over till next week. You can show off your Altitude Crime swagger with some awesome merch. Hop on over to etsy.com slash shop slash Altitude Crime, and get your shop on. Um, I probably will be phasing out the masks here soon and adding in some new merch, so keep an eye out. Well, Crime Clan, Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Join me next week for another episode of Altitude Crime. Episode 11, The Murders of Lorraine Pacheco and Karen Pineda Nelson was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music by Podbean.com.